Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. I'm joined by managing editor David Noyce, who oversees our faith coverage. Hi, Dave. Hello, Peggy. To begin, we remind our listeners that you can support Mormonland by going to patreon.com slash mormonland to make a donation. There you can access transcripts to our podcast. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash mormonland. You also can keep up with the latest happenings in and about the church via our newsletter. Just sign up at sltrib.com forward slash mormon hyphen land. Now for today's show. During her five decades of life, Kate Holbrook connected to hundreds of Latter-day Saint women in the present and in her role as professional historian with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, she elevated the voices of scores of women from the past. Now, nearly a year after her death, Holbrook's own voice is reaching an even wider audience in a new book titled, Both Things Are True. There was so much she wanted to finish, books, articles, conferences, relationships, podcasts, events, her widowed husband, Samuel Brown, writes in the book's epilogue, but dying of cancer was hard work undertaken reluctantly. There was less time and energy to finish. These five essays together, quote, chart a path through the heart of Kate's faith, writes Rosalind Franson Welch in the prologue. These essays speak to history, belief, spirituality, community, and even the beauty of housework and cooking. Joining us today via Zoom to discuss the book is Sam Brown, an ICU physician, researcher, and writer, along with Rosalind Welch, a senior research fellow at BYU's Maxwell Institute and host of the BYU's Maxwell Institute's podcast. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Thanks, Peggy. I'm happy to be here. Hey, let's start off. And Sam, I'm, we're very sorry about your loss, and we're going to try to do this without crying. It's okay. Um, tears are all, okay. Tears are okay. Uh, how did you all come up with the title, and how does it capture Kate's thinking? Sam? Kate, oh, yeah. Kate initially had thought she would call it Two Things Are True. She liked the she liked the alliteration of it. And as as someone like Kate, who was um, so faithful and so committed to the church and also such a great friend to people outside the church, including people who had disaffiliated from the church, she spent a lot of time in loving faith and community with people who held very different ideas from others and, and also who held potentially conflicting ideas internally. And as Kate reflected on it, she felt like too often we were forcing ourselves into false dichotomies or false choices that you had to go with A or B, couldn't be with both, for example. And so with two things are true, she was trying to say very frequently, stuff that looks contradictory is actually part of a a meaningful whole that can grow us. And as she was wrapping up, and we'll talk more about this in a second, I'm sure, but we got uh, Maxwell Institute and Deseret Book involved in, in thinking it through. And Lisa Roper, who's a senior editor and marvelous human being at Deseret Book, said, you know, I, I get the alliteration, but I think what you're trying to say is both things are true. Not two things are true, but not the third, not some weird listicle. 
but specifically yeah. that notion of tension of, of life-giving tension in a parent paradox. And uh, that just seemed correct. So we went with both things are true as Lisa's riffing on Kate's original title. So Rosalind, how did you get involved in the, with this book? Well, I had worked with Kate on the Maxwell Institute Advisory Council for a number of years. And in particular, we had worked together on um, the imprint board, um, which gives advice to the Maxwell Institute on on what titles it should publish. And Kate, had, together with Melissa anyway, had been passionate advocates for the inclusion of more women's voices, um, it's particularly in our Living Faith series, which is a series of books um, intended for a broad audience. Um, and, and they had together devised a number of really ingenious ways to make this happen, including grants specifically for women writers, which in fact will eventuate in, in a title published next year. They together had edited a really fantastic collection called Every Needful Thing that gathered women's voices. Um, but there was something more and Kate wanted to speak in her own voice. Um, so there had been a, a project in the works in the very incipient stages um, for Kate to publish a book in her own voice. As we know, she was a marvelous editor of other women's voices um, and very gifted at discovering important women, Latter-day Saint women's voices and in polishing them and shining them up so that they could speak as widely as possible. But she hadn't written much from a first person point of view. And um, through a series of events last summer, almost exactly a year ago, um, I, I was moved to reach out to Kate and um, ask her if she was going to be able to um, write in her own voice. Um, and I, I did, hadn't realized at that point how short her time would be. Um, but as it happened, Kate and Sam understood how short their time would be. And uh, as, I, as I reached out to offer my help to her in any way that I could, um, she graciously invited me to collaborate with her. So for um, about a month, we went back and forth and both of us developed confidence in the process that I, I could read her writing, I could discern her meaning, and I could revise it and polish it and add to it in a way that um, amplified her own perspective rather than inserting mine. Um, and and then in the last couple of weeks, um, as she really began to fade, um, she she sent me the rest of the chapters and um, and asked me um, if I would if I would complete it, if I would complete the revision and do the work of of polishing and knitting together these five different essays into a book. So with the help of several other people, namely Miranda Wilcox, who is the editor of the book, Jenny Pulsifer and Jan Jenna Reese, uh, we worked together to try to realize Kate's vision. So, so what surprised you about these essays? Anything? Yeah, there, there was, there were several things that, um, that surprised me. Um, you know, Kate, Kate wrote about what she loved. It seems like at every point in time, and, and Sam, you can chime in here if you think I've missed something, but she chose her research subjects 
um, based on what was close to her heart. So she grew up in a household of women. She was raised by her mother and her grandmother. So women's lives and women's work always attracted her. Of course, her faith in in the the gospel and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the foundation of her life. And so she was drawn to writing about that. She famously loved to cook and was an, it was an, uh, you know, a, an amazing cook. And so she wrote about cooking. Um, so, so what surprised me, I guess, was how successful she was at weaving her own life and her own experience into the work of historiography, which had been her professional work throughout her life. And so throughout these essays, she very, very skillfully toggles between her own experience and speaking in her own point of view and drawing on um on her her skills in the historical method and on her encyclopedic knowledge of Latter-day Saint women's history um, and, and was able to weave them together in a way that I had really never heard her do before in life. So, Sam, uh, this isn't going to be a, the typical book in some respects. Could you explain where the proceeds of this book will go? Yeah, as she was wrapping up, uh, she remembered that when she was a div student and I was a medical student and we were living on $4,500 a year that a benefactress uh, or benefactor um, in Colorado uh, wanted to support Kate's work on women in society and gave her a grant to go to a meeting in Geneva and do some more research. And it was, it was so helpful to know that someone had her back and that there was a way to open doors for further study. And as she was wrapping up, she wanted to be able to do a similar thing for uh, women uh, who had young children, because she felt like with no one intending to do it, women raising children tended just by the sheer volume of work to be done at home and with the kids to be less able to carve out additional training in the humanities or work in the humanities. So uh, we were able to endow a scholarship fund in her name that supports, um, uh, it's actually written as primary caregivers of young children in graduate work in the humanities. And all of the author proceeds for this will go to for this book will go to that scholarship for I mean colloquially for young mothers that want to do graduate work in humanities. Yeah, very much a, a pay it forward kind of thing. Huh? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, let me ask you uh, for yourself uh, a favorite essay of yours in the book. They may uh, all be favorites, of course, but <laughs> no, it uh, you know it's complicated as a widow. And I've met a lot of widows and others who've been bereaved. They, they, there's sort of a community you sort of recognize each other. Um, and you realize that part of what's happening in that bereavement is um, understanding yourself uh, in a world not currently shaped by the beloved. Because in a good relationship, beloved shape each other. Um, and that's part of the beauty of being together. And 
And then you sort of think through what is that, what was that shape when we were alive together and what's the shape of it now? And, and I think, um, for me, we had a crisis in our marriage when Kate first lost her, lost her eye and suddenly realized that, um, I was not showing up at home, uh, with housework, uh, and that she'd resented it in retrospect for years. And I just been a busy academic physician, always working and, and, and not particularly engaged in the housework. And, and that crisis about 10 years ago was incredibly painful for me, uh, and led to a lot of transformations and learn how to cook and, uh, do housework in a, in a meaningful way and be much more present. And I, and I realized, um, that that had become a story about me as morally deformed. And, and so what would I be without Kate? And, and I think part of her gift to me in these essays was to simultaneously say, uh, you are a good person even without me. And together we created these marvelous things. And, uh, her essay on housework is beautiful and thoughtful and provocative and does really important things for thinking about the shape of relationships with men and women. Uh, but it was also, I think, her making sure I knew she forgave me for having been a pain in the ass for the first 10 years of our marriage. And, and for clarity, I was totally faithful and never cruel. Like in a, like and it, it, it just, I just didn't do any housework. I just worked all the time. And whenever I was home, I always said, I love you. And I'm glad to see you. I just wouldn't do any housework because I was exhausted. So that was it. But I felt such remorse about having caused her pain around the, the housework that 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 essay for me felt like she said i forgive you not a lot yeah i i'll just add i really love that essay as well um it, it's sort of surprising the other four chapters take on what seem like more formal or kind of weighty topics. The first one is about what it means that we belong to the true church. The second one is on revelation. The, the fourth one is on forgiveness and accountability. And the final one is on legacy. So these are, she's not afraid to take on very meaty, weighty, um, even kind of philosophical and theological topics. And so right here, in the middle of the book is this is this essay on housework, which I think might strike some readers as surprising. But um, as Sam has just so beautifully expressed, it's actually kind of a perfect illustration of what she's able to do, which is forthrightly acknowledge the real tensions in our lived experience. Um, Kate, as a human being, as a public human being, um, was extremely poised. And you never saw a shade of conflict pass her face. She was able to seemingly cope with everything um, without without a problem. That was her her public persona that that I related to. Um, so it was kind of a revelation to realize that she was actually deeply attuned to conflict and to stress um, all the things that make real life what 
what they are. Um, and she puts that on on display as a crucible of what it means to be a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. Um, as Christians, we're called to be real and to get our hands dirty um, in the soil of reality. Um, in fact, this chapter ends with a beautiful meditation on gardening, um, and, it, and it ends with an image of her up to her elbows in earth. Um, and then coping with the with the messiness and the joy that gardening brought her. Um, so I agree with Sam that that's a very, very special um, part of the book buried right there at its heart. And that, and that poise of Kate's was an expression of her love of people and her desire for them to be able to experience that love and it was also her celebration of beauty and she was never somebody who would tell people to you know step up and don't express your authentic sadness she just wanted to be sure in encounters with people that they experienced from her warmth and love and a sense that the world is a beautiful place with beautiful things and beautiful people in it but it, it that was a gift that she gave to others that took a lot of energy and a lot of sacrifice. She was extremely shy, uh, but she overcame it uh, to be of use to people. Sam, how did, how did Kate's perspective affect your own faith? Um, and how have her words helped you cope with her death? The two questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, since the age of 18, when I, transition from atheism to theism, um, I, I found God and remained reasonably feral, the wild or uncivilized or uncultivated. So there's always been an element of raw physicality and defiance in me that is co-present with a deep theism and a tenderheartedness. Um, but you can imagine that putting a, a God-loving, tender-hearted dude in a feral persona does not always lead to the best outcomes. And one thing Kate helped me to do was figure out how to be of greater service to people as the man that I truly am and, and the man that God is making me into that God and the saints are making me into. So I think that what Kate brought to me was an increasing awareness of the nuances of others, emotional states and the importance of modulating a big presence sometimes uh, to allow others to flourish. Um, and so that's something that changed. And she, as she was wrapping up, she said, when I commented that, she said, yeah, maybe that's true. And and you, Sam, have helped me to have a little bit of a thicker skin. Um, so there, there is this kind of dynamic sharing as you grow together. Um, the second question is harder. Um, you investigate a reporters and your hard questions. Um, the, for me, this book, you know, I'd read it before. I don't know, six months ago, maybe. But I got the book and read it on a plane ride, um, some work meetings. 
And uh, it was beautiful and it was hard because simultaneously I had uh, her presence there and uh, an awareness that it was there only in that book. Um, the, yeah, I'm a totally committed, devout, faithful Latter-day Saint. Um, no disclaimers or caveats or asterisks or whatever. And it's true that I don't natively grok afterlife. Because uh, I believe in it and I, I, I honor that that's something Kate knew perfectly. Um, but it's not something that's ever fully sorted itself out in my heart. Um, and I think, uh, you know, some people have this gift after a beloved dies that they feel the beloved present. Um, and I have not, uh, you know, we're all different. We all have different spiritual gifts and, um, for me, as she was wrapping up, I relied on her clear knowledge of the the fact of afterlife and an afterlife of full and robust relating and impending reunion with her grandmother. And now that she's gone, um, I still have a kind of theological commitment to that, but it, but I and and that hasn't changed at all. Yeah, but it's still still sort of not native to my heart. Um, but this book was this moment of feeling her wisdom and grace. You know, as I've worked on this book, as I sat in my office last September and October and worked on each of these essays, I also tried to picture Kate. I prayed to feel her presence or her guidance if she wanted to offer it to me. Um, and I don't have any miraculous stories there, um, but there's a passage in the book that struck me with such force as I read it. Um, and it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's in, it's in the chapter, the second chapter, which is about revelation. And Kate is talking about why revelation matters in the church. Um, Sometimes we can make a big deal about continuing revelation. That's all great, she says, but why does it matter? And here she's she's answering that question. Um, and she's thinking about this idea of God gathering his children through covenant. And she's just kind of riffing on that idea. Um, and and she shares this image um, of to her what it what this gathering actually consists of and what it feels like, what it feels like to be gathered in Christ. Um, and I'm going to read a passage here from page 68 of the book. I love the image of all of us from every part of the earth finding pasture together under one perfect, all loving shepherd. There is a pasture I love that I visit every summer. Horses and cows graze there. The sky, mountains, meadow, trees, and streams are beautiful. The air is clear. The animals have all that they need, and they are safe there. To have all of us in a safe 
and beautiful place where we are known, seen, and cared for. I want to be in that place and I want to help others find it. And as I read that passage, um, I knew that that is Kate's heaven, that she was describing there her faith in an afterlife and her faith in an all-loving God who would gather her to him. Um, and I think for the rest of my life, um, when I try to do that, that work of, of picturing an afterlife like Sam, that isn't my spiritual gift. Um, but I know that Kate's image of the pasture um, is going to be my heaven too. So Rosalind, let's talk about her, just Kate's relationship between the church's teachings on community and on self-sufficiency. Seemed like that was one of those both and things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think you're referring to the way that she, in, in chapter one, she thinks about what it means to belong to the true church. Oftentimes, Latter-day Saints will, will stand up and will testify. Um, I, I, you know, I have a testimony that this is the true church. And Kate wanted to dig into that and figure out what do we really mean? So this is one of those um, moments where um, Miranda Wilcox and I needed to fill out um, Kate's vision with a little more material. So we went back to her dissertation, which was on foodways, Latter-day Saint foodways. Um, and, and I read every chapter of her dissertation. I know more now about foodways of Latter-day Saints and Nation of Islam than I ever, ever wanted to. Um, but we found um, some images in there that we thought worked really well to describe what she was saying. So on the one hand, Kate is saying, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true because it has truth. It contains true teachings. In a similar way to the way that um, early in Latter-day Saint history, Relief Society sisters would gather grain in an attempt to be self-sufficient in their food. So they, they would gather up and store up grain um, as the saints were building this new community in a place where they were cut off from normal supply chains. So it was their desire to be self-sufficient. And there's a way in which the church kind of sees itself as theologically self-sufficient as well, right? That we have the truth um, and we welcome we welcome all truth, but but we've got it. We're taking care of it. At the same time, though, there's another thing that's true. Um, both things are true. And, and that is that the church is always becoming true. Yes, it has truth, but it's progressing. It's an ongoing restoration as Elder Uchtdorf taught. So how is it becoming more true if it already has all truth? So once again, going back to her dissertation, um, she did this really fun and interesting work on the ways that Latter-day Saint women even as they were striving for self-sufficiency in their food supply, they looked outside of their community for things like tablescapes and recipes and decorating tips. And in these early Latter-day Saint women's publications, you can see them engaged in this process of give and take with other communities. Um, and it seems like in the same way, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will draw in truth from any corner right? All truth can be circumscribed into one great whole. Um, and and our, our church becomes truer as it brings us into true relationship with one another, as it teaches us to be, to live in fidelity to 
those inside the church who are our covenant brothers and sisters, those who may have left the church, um, who um, who we still love and relate to, and those who are no part of the church at all. Um, Kate provides examples of all of those kinds of relationship where we can live in true relationship with one another. And as we do that, we actually aspirationally make the church become true in real time. So, Rosalind, a question, what do you hope readers will take away from the book? I, it, it is my greatest hope that when they read the book, they will hear Kate's voice. Many of these chapters actually began as spoken word as speeches. She was very strategic in her last years as she lived in the shadow of her impending death to spend her time on projects that would have an afterlife. So at least three of these chapters originated as speeches. And I would encourage anybody who reads the book and loves it to go onto YouTube and to find find those speeches. You can you can find them with with a little bit of digging. Um, and and I hope that when you hear her very distinctive spoken voice and the incredible warmth and compassion that she was gifted to convey in her spoken communication, I hope that that has come through in the written word. That was my greatest hope, um, was to preserve that, to enhance it, not to do anything to insert my own sensibility in fact, there are there are things that Kate and I actually disagree with, and it was a very interesting experience to write for Kate, uh, to write on behalf of Kate, not in conversation with her, but for her. It was a, a deeply spiritual experience in many ways for me. Um, so I hope that readers will come away with a sense of her voice, and I I pray that it's been preserved in these in these pages. So in the uh, the last chapter is titled The Weight of Legacy. You you wrote in the prologue, it's almost unbearably poignant to read that chapter in the light of her death. This awareness did, did not lead her to despair, obviously knowing she was going to die, but rather to sustained contemplation of her life's remnant. Her willingness to pursue this question seems to me an act of astonishing spiritual courage. What did you mean by that? And what do you think her spiritual legacy is going to be? The weight of legacy here. Yeah. I can't know what it's like to live in the knowledge of my imminent death. All of us, of course, live every day in the knowledge of our eventual death. And I think we have a lot to learn from those who are currently in the valley of the shadow of death because their, their situation is ours as well. We just have the luxury of not recognizing it. Still, I live my life day to day expecting that I'll be around to do things in a year, in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years. Um, Kate didn't have that luxury where most of us can distract ourselves and live in a kind of fantasy world where we'll live forever. Kate didn't. Um, she could have. I think she she could have retreated um, and and refused to think hard about what it means that her life would be short, but 
she had the courage to continue on that path led by her good shepherd, I believe. I, I think it was her relationship to Jesus Christ that gave her the strength to do so. But she she was willing to think about what it meant that she would die soon. Um, Kate was ambitious. She was so gracious and so humble that you might miss that aspect of her personality, but it comes out in this chapter. She was deeply ambitious and she wanted her life to be big. She had big dreams um, and sense that that she had an important mission. Um, so in this in this chapter, she validates that and says, as disciples of Christ, when we're asked to to you know lose our lives that we can gain it, it doesn't mean that we we can't have ambition and that we can't have dreams for our lives. But what she argues so persuasively is that the influence of our lives is amplified when we invest in other people. We become larger when we make those we live in relationship to larger. So I think her legacy will be, in fact, the ways, not only the short stack of books on the shelf, um, her career was relatively short. She didn't, um, she only published this one book in her own name. She edited a, a handful of other books, but it's a short list. Um, they're treasures and they will live on. Um, but I think her greatest legacy will be in the ways that she mentored and taught a generation of young historians who will carry on her work in Latter-day Saint women's history at the church history department and many who have gone far and wide, right? Her, her legacy isn't limited to Latter-day Saint history, um, but her extremely empathetic way of looking at historical figures, she would never take a con the condescending view to, of history that many of us do, where we look back and say, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that quaint? Or isn't that benighted? Um, every historical person that she came across, whose voice she was privileged to read and to hear, she wouldn't rest until she understood why their lives mattered in their own view, right? What to them was the meaning of their life? And then she was able to unearth that and give it to us as a gift. And, and this sort of empathetic um, approach to history and historical figures I that she trained many young historians in, any reader of the book will be trained in it as well as you, as you witness her doing it. Um, I think that will be one of her greatest legacies. So one last question for you, Sam. What do you hope readers will take away from the book? People who didn't know her, just reading it. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a complicated time to be alive, period. And it's a very complicated time to be someone who loves and flourishes in a robust religious community. And, and I would hope that coming away from this people would have this shock of awareness that this incredibly bright, warm, gracious, cosmopolitan woman loved this faith community with her whole heart and, and believed it, heart and soul, and then invites you into this world of love and belief and commitment that is not, um, it's not brittle, it's not partisan, it's not rigid, it's warm and life-giving like a garden, and it's messy like a garden, but it's 
it's messy to the end of growing these beautiful things. It's not messy to be celebrated because messy, messy, messy. It's that the reality is that good and glorious and beautiful things grow in the setting of this earthy experience of ours. So I, I feel like, and, and, uh, you know, she didn't have all of the answers and none of us has all the answers, but, but, but here's this example of a working mother and intellectual, um, with lots of really interesting and complex and nuanced beliefs who, who loved and served their whole heart in, in a warmth that extended both inside and outside the community. So I, that introduction to this kind of a woman, they, they do exist. Kate was not the only one. She's just a very memorable and powerful one. So Sam Brown and Rosalind Welch, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Thank Peggy. And thanks for th having us. Thanks to our and thanks to Dave Noyce and to our producer Nicole Weaver. We remind our li listeners they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. Talk again next time on Mormon Land. Mm -hmm.